What are some of the core verses? If we could just master those, it would help us understand the rest of the Bible. That these core verses would be a lens through which we could understand the rest of the Bible. So that's what we're going to be doing tonight. If you want to go ahead and open your Bible to Genesis chapter 15, I want to just read this verse to you, then we're going to pray, and then we'll jump into the study. Genesis chapter 15, this is our core verse for tonight. Not even sure that I wrote it out specifically, I think it's on the bottom of your notes. Uh, But Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, another short verse, but extremely important verse. That really gives us a lens through which to view the rest of the Bible. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. We're going to get to that when we get to the end of the study. We're going to go a long way around the block before we get to that. Uh, so if you need an outline, still raise your hand. If you st- I knew there was some over here to my left. If you still need an outline, raise your hand and hold it up. Keep it up for just a moment. Thank you all for getting those for us. While they're doing that, let me make an announcement and then we're going to pray. I did not announce in the services this morning because I didn't have the information yet, but many of you have heard perhaps that Dan Patterson died last night. Uh, Dan had a long battle with cancer, and uh, man, I tell you what, I've said this to several people, he and his wife Peggy just have had such a positive attitude through this whole thing. I've just never seen anybody quite have the attitude positive attitude that they've had from beginning to end Uh, so they did not have arrangements made this morning so I didn't mention it but now they do have arrangements made and here are the arrangements for Dan Patterson's funeral they'll be receiving friends at Robinson's over on Powdersville Road on Tuesday night six until eight Tuesday night six until eight and then the funeral will be here at Mount Airy on Wednesday at two o'clock Okay, so if you, if you need that more or, or need to hear it again, I'll give it to you later. But let's just pray for Peggy and for Ben and Nate and that family and ask God to minister to them and then we'll begin our study. Father, our brother Dan is with you now and we know that he has fought the good fight, he has finished the race, he has kept the faith. And Father, I pray that you'd minister now to his family left behind, to to Peggy, to Nate, to Ben, to the rest of that family, to his parents. God, would you just give them comfort in this time of heartache? You give them peace in this time of, of just trying to figure out what life is going to be like now. I thank you for our brother and just ask you to bring comfort to him And also, Lord, we want to pray again for the Vargo family. It's been a hard week for them as well as they've had to say goodbye to Mike. And so, Father, we just pray for your grace to be sufficient, that the Scripture would be fulfilled, that you would be their refuge and their strength and a very present help in this time of trouble. Pray for the comfort that only you can give for each of these families. Father, also tonight we pray that you would direct our path as we study your word. And I pray that tonight, God, you would just enable me to speak in a way that that would uh, help your folks to understand your word. God, we're digging into some deep stuff tonight, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would ultimately be our teacher 
and be our guide. And may Jesus Christ be honored and glorified and may we be edified as we understand better uh, your word and how we relate to you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so tonight I want to talk to you about the covenants between God and man as we look at core 52, some of the core verses. So far we've talked about creation and we've talked about our true identity and last Sunday we, we also talked about the fall. And we finished last week with a statement something like this. We said last week that God is holy, we're sinful, and God is just, and yet we break his commandments. And it raises the question, how does a holy and just God have a relationship with us when we're not holy or just? And we said last week as we were ending that because God is holy and just, he can't say, well... You know, I'm feeling kind of benevolent towards you guys today, so I'm just going to let it slide. He can't do that. God can't look at us and say, well, let's just pretend like it never happened. God can't do that. He, he can't say, I'm going to let you off the hook this time. If God decided to take any of those avenues and let it slide, let us off the hook, look the other way, then God wouldn't be holy and God wouldn't be just. And yet, this holy and just God loves us and wants a relationship with us. So how does he do that? I mean, from our perspective, if you think about it, it really does look hopeless. His holiness and our sinfulness. His holiness demanding that our sin be judged. It really does look hopeless. So here's the key question we're going to start digging into tonight. It's on the top of your note sheet there. The key question is this. How does God relate to mankind? Write that down. How does God relate to mankind? Since the creation of the world, you, you might want to just jot this down as well, just as a side note. Since the creation of the world, God's relationship to mankind has been defined with specific requirements and promises. Say that again. Since the creation of the world, God's relationship to mankind has been defined by specific requirements and promises. In other words, God tells people how he wants them to act, how he wants them to live, and God makes promises about how he will act towards them. Now the Bible, here's a key word, the Bible calls these agreements covenants. Covenants. I gave you a definition of a covenant there on your note sheet. Let's kind of work our way through this definition for a moment. A covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. All through the Bible, God has always related to mankind through covenant. Please understand that. So let's break down this definition a little bit. First of all, you might want to underline the word agreement. The word agreement suggests that there are two parties involved, God and man. And in fact, it says in this definition, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man. There's this agreement. When you talk about an, a covenant, you're always talking about an agreement. If you talk about a biblical covenant, you're talking about an agreement between God 
a man. And then I want you to notice the phrase divinely imposed. Put a circle around that in the definition. Divinely imposed. What that means is there are, these are not equal partners in the relationship. When God establishes a covenant with us, we are not equal partners with him. Man can never negotiate with God. We can't ever change the terms of the agreement. We can only accept the, the, the covenant obligations or reject them. But we can't change them. We can't negotiate them. And then I want you to notice one other word. It's near the front of the definition. Put a box around the word unchangeable. Unchangeable. A covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. Now, let me make sure I state this clearly. When I say unchangeable, what I mean is you can't change it, but God can but that doesn't mean that it can't be superseded by another covenant. And in fact, you'll see that throughout Scripture. That God establishes a covenant, and then it is replaced or superseded by a different covenant. But, but I want you to notice that these covenants that God establishes with mankind are unchangeable. We don't get to say, okay, well, let's do a different one. We're tired of this one. Let's change the terms. We're, we can't do that. Now, I think there's a place on your notes for this. The essential element at the heart of every covenant in the Bible is this promise. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the heart of the covenant. Any covenant we're going to talk about tonight, the heart of any covenant in the Bible is this description, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, we're going to look at a lot of scripture tonight. Let's start in, in Jeremiah chapter 31. I'll show you an example of this description here, this element of, of God wanting a relationship with us. Jeremiah 31. Okay, let's start in verse, chapter 31, let's start in verse 32. We're not going to take time to really dig into this. Well, let's start in verse 31, chapter 31, verse 31. We're not going to take time to really dig into this, but I just want you to see this word covenant and how God uses it to relate to his people. Verse 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, signifying there's already been a covenant in place, but God says I'm going to make a new covenant. And it's a new covenant with who? The house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. That covenant that he's referring to there would be what we would call the Sinai covenant. The covenant that God made with Moses. He said the one that I'm going to make will not be like that one. Because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So the previous covenant, the, the covenant that God made with Moses and the covenant 
that, that sometimes is called the Sinai Covenant was basically a covenant of law. This is the, the laws. This is what I want you to do. And if you'll do this, this is how you'll be blessed. So it was a covenant of law. And God said they broke that covenant. They didn't keep the laws that I gave them. And then God foretells through Jeremiah that a new covenant is coming. I love this. Verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So here, through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah is is foretelling there's coming a day when, when the covenant that God made with his people, the old covenant that God made at Mount Sinai, that he made with his people through Moses, the covenant of law. It was a covenant that they didn't keep. God said, there's a new covenant coming that I'm going to write on their hearts. And and just want you to see right now, all I want you to really focus on is this this sentence in verse 33. I will be be their God and they will be my people. That is the heart of every covenant God made. Let me show you another example in the New Testament. Go to the the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he's addressing some issues. And one of the issues that he is addressing, beginning of verse 14, is that Christians should not be married to non-Christians. As Paul says it, don't be yoked with unbelievers. So let's see how he talks about this in verse 14 and following. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. What, What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? He's making a case that, that you really don't have anything in common with an unbeliever as far as uniting your lives together. So he says in verse 15, What harmony is there between Christ and Bel... I can't even say that one. You see it. <laughs> and then he says, What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? So he's just making his case, and he's asking a lot of questions. But then notice what he says. For we, that is we who are Christians, the believers, for we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's always God's heart. That really is a summary of everything that God wants to accomplish throughout the Bible. How does God relate to man? Mankind. How does God relate to us? Well, God relates to us with this idea that he wants to be their God. and He wants them to be his people. Now let me clarify something before we get too far into this idea of covenants. A covenant in God's eyes is more than just each party doing their part. A covenant in God's eyes is a promise that builds a lasting relationship. 
You might want to, I don't think I, I put that on your notes, but you might want to just jot that down somewhere. A covenant in God's eyes is more than just each party doing their part. But a covenant with God is a promise that builds a lasting relationship between the creator and his creation. So God's idea with the covenant is to really establish this ongoing, lasting relationship. That's the idea behind the covenant. Now, there are two kinds of covenants in the Bible. Two types. Now, we're going to get a little deep here, all right? So, uh, just hang on. Follow as closely as you can. But there are two types of covenant. And these covenants really have their origin way back in the days of the Old Testament. And when I talk about what these two types of covenants are, I'm simply saying these are the kind of covenants that were used in the days of the Old Testament, and those same type covenants were adopted by God and His people. All right? So there's two types of covenants uh, that are used in the Old Testament. Uh, First is one that's called the suzerain-vassal covenant. The suzerain vassal covenant. Let me tell you what this this means. The suzerain basically was the king, the leader. The vassal would be his subject. So this was a covenant not between equals. This was a covenant between a king and his servants or a greater king and a lesser king. That was always the suzerain vassal covenant. Again, not a covenant between equals. A covenant between the king and his servant, the suzerain, the king, and the vassal, his servant, or between a greater king and a lesser king. It is sometimes called a suzerain treaty as well. If you're reading things, sometimes you'll see it listed as a suzerain treaty. Uh, the, the rules were pretty simple. There's three rules but to establish this kind of a treaty or this kind of a covenant. Let me give you those three rules. Number one, the greater of the two parties establish the conditions of the covenant. I'm going to give you time to, read, or to write that down. Because this was not a covenant between equals, it was a covenant between the greater king and the lesser king or the king and his servants, then the greater king is the one who established the condition of the covenant. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you're the leader, if you're the greater king, if you're trying to establish a covenant with someone, then you get to establish the conditions of the covenant. Number two, these conditions specified the rewards if the covenant was kept and the punishment if the contract was broken. So it was spelled out clearly, the rewards if you keep this covenant and the punishments if you break this covenant. Again, if you think about the suzerain, the king, the ruler, he's saying to the lesser king or saying to the servant, here's the covenant I'm willing to make with you. If you will abide by these rules, then you can experience the blessings that I am willing to give you. But if you do not abide by these rules, you will experience the punishment that I can inflict upon you because I am the greater of of the two parties. Number three, the third rule is this. 
the covenant was usually ratified by a blood sacrifice to show how serious of a matter it was. The covenant was usually ratified by a blood sacrifice to show how serious it was. Now, it wasn't just that there was an animal that was sacrificed and the blood was spilled out. It is actually that they would take an animal, for example, maybe an ox, and not only would they kill the ox and shed the blood of the animal, but they would also cut the ox up and lay it into two halves. And they would walk between those two halves. And they were basically saying to one another, a similar fate will occur to the person who breaks this covenant. Now, this is in the Bible. I'll show you this, this uh, example in the Bible. Look with me in Genesis chapter 15. We were there earlier. Let's go Genesis chapter 15. God is establishing in Genesis chapter 15 a covenant with Abram. And if we were to give it, if we were to try to summarize what kind of covenant it was, it was a suzerain vassal covenant. Now, everybody look up here. You've got God and you've got Abraham. Which of those two are the suzerain? Of course, God. Abraham would be the vassal or the lesser of the two parties. Now, I want you to notice how this covenant unfolded. Genesis chapter 15. Verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now, you, let's pause there for a moment before we read the next verse. You remember that Abraham was an old man at this time. A childless old man. And God's saying, If you look at the stars and believe me, then... Uh, like you, can, you can't count the stars, they won't be able to count your offspring. It's going to be so many. And then we come to that key verse, that core verse, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord. And he, God, credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now stop, don't read any further. That's some weird stuff, isn't it? I mean, in our day, in our day we'd look at that and say, what in what is this? What is going on here? God's about to establish a covenant. You know what it was called? It was called cutting a covenant. God was about to cut a covenant with Abram. 
You know why it was called cutting a covenant? You can figure it out, right? Just read and you'll find out. Verse 10, Abram brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I'll punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation... Your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates and the land of the Kenites and Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gerashites, and Jebusites. On that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abram. So that's one type of, of covenant that was made. Then the other one is a little bit easier, perhaps, to understand, a little bit easier for us to, to say, okay, that, that, I can see how that works with God and with his people. Uh, the third or the second type is called a royal grant covenant. A royal grant covenant. Now, this was pretty easy because a royal grant covenant is an agreement where one person in the covenant makes an unconditional promise to the other person. The key word here is unconditional. One person in the covenant makes an unconditional promise to the other. And you could put comma with the other person not having to do anything in return. Now, which of those two would you prefer to have? Pretty easy, right? An unconditional promise, and you don't have to do anything in return. A royal grant covenant. Now, as I said, that was pretty easy to comprehend, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. What I want to do now is to walk with you real quickly. We won't take a lot of time with it, but there are basically five major covenants in the Bible. And these five major covenants sometimes are the suzerain vassal covenant, sometimes they're a royal grant covenant, sometimes they are a combination of both. So I, Again, we're trying to get to this idea of God made a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. We're going to get there, hopefully. But let me real quickly explain to you these five major covenants that are in the Bible that God made with his people. The first recorded covenant that God made with his people 
was through his servant Noah. It is called the Noahic Covenant. Uh, It resembled a royal grant covenant. The royal grant covenant, can you guess what that covenant was that God said to Noah? Yeah. God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'll never destroy the world again like I just did. Uh, Let me show it to you real quickly. You're in Genesis. Go over to chapter 9, verse 11. Let's, well, let's, let's go to Genesis chapter 9. Let's start in verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And watch this. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. He said, I establish my covenant with you. And here's the covenant. Never again. Will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood? Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. That was a royal grant covenant. And in fact, it was such a a divine promise. God said, I'm not just making this covenant with Noah, and I'm not even making this covenant with Noah and his descendants. I'm making this covenant with every living creature on earth. So, of course, this could not have been a suzerain vassal covenant because they didn't need to respond and the birds of the air couldn't have responded. And and, and so this was a royal grant covenant, God declaring this is an unconditional promise that that I'm making. That's the Noahic covenant. Uh, Another one that you'll see in Scripture, and we're going to come back to this in a little bit, uh, is the Abrahamic covenant, the one that we've already read a little bit about. God extended an impossible command to Abraham when he told him to leave his land, leave his family, leave everything that he knew, and go follow him to the land that he would show him. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, it says the call of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household, go to the land I will show you, and I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And watch this, the second part of verse 3. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This covenant that God made with Abraham was really a combination of these two covenants. Uh, As God promises to Abraham that he'd make a great nation out of him, that's more of a royal grant covenant. I'm going to bless the world through you. That's a royal grant covenant. But he does ask Abraham to leave his country and to leave his people. And and there's some conditions in all that God's going to be doing through Abraham. And that would be more of the suzerain vassal type covenant. So it's the Abrahamic covenant was kind of a combination of the two. That Abraham had something to do. And, but God promised a lot that he was going to do for Abraham and through Abraham. I'm, I'm just moving through this rather quickly, trying to get to the, to the end of our study. The, the third type covenant, major covenant, that you see in the Bible is the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant. God gave Moses the law, and he asked Moses to share that law with his people. Genesis chapter 19. Go to Genesis chapter 19. I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 19. 
Exodus chapter 19. They're at Mount Sinai. Verse 3, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now watch carefully what he says. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words of the Lord who had commanded him to speak. Look up here on the board. Which of those two covenants do you think that is? Yes. Suzerain vassal. Because he says, okay, here's the conditions. And if you will obey me fully then this is what I'm going to do for you. This is the covenant I'm making with you and with your people. That God would richly bless them as his chosen people. Then we come to the fourth major covenant, and that is the Davidic covenant. That is the covenant that God made with David, the man after God's own heart. God promises unconditionally who ensured King David and his lineage, that his lineage would rule forever. Go to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 8 through verse 11. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all of your enemies, declares the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body. And watch this. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What's that next word? Forever. Did you see any conditions in that covenant? No. This was a royal grant covenant. For God was declaring, because he is God, he was declaring, David, I'm going to do something for you, and I'm going to do something through you, that through your lineage, there will be one who sits on the throne forever. 
which was, of course, a prediction of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you open up the book of Matthew and you start reading the lineage, and you'll see that, that Jesus was the fulfillment who came to sit on the throne of David forever. It was a fulfillment of that covenant that he made with David, that promise, that royal grant promise that he made with David. Now, so far we've been in the Old Testament. Everybody look up here for a moment. I know you're trying to take a lot of notes. I, I, I get that. But so far we've been in the Old Testament. And do you know what sometimes we call the Old Testament? We call it the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant. And therefore the New Testament is sometimes referred to as the New Covenant. Why would we call it the New Covenant? That's the fifth major covenant in the Bible. Fifth major covenant in the Bible is the New Covenant. You might want to write this down. Uh, the New Covenant is ushered in by the sacrificial death of Jesus to save His people from their sins and reunite them with God. Unlike the Mosaic Covenant that was a covenant based on law and obedience... This new covenant would be based on grace and faith. Now, we're setting the stage, trying to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Go with me to uh, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he offered it to them saying, drink from it all of you. And then watch what he says in verse 28. This is my blood of the covenant. And some translations say my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This, this cup, this is my blood of the new covenant. It is a covenant based on grace and a covenant based on faith. It's the new covenant. Now, I want to take a couple of minutes before we leave and try to put it all back together. Because the key verse, remember the core verse is Genesis 15, 6. Somebody look up Genesis 15, 6 and, and read it out loud for us. Remind us what that verse says. Genesis 15, 6 says what? Say that again. Abram believed the Lord and it was counted to him or credited to him as righteousness. Let me summarize the book of Genesis for you and basically the Bible. Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 through 11 explains the beginning of the world. Genesis 1 through 11 explains the beginning of the world. Genesis 12 through 15 or 12 through 50 explains the history of one family family of Abraham. 
But let me take it a little bit deeper. Genesis 1 through 11 explains how the world got so messed up. Genesis 12 through 50 explains how God started the process of of dealing with the sin that occurred in Genesis 1 through 11. Of overturning, if you will, the problems and the sin that occurred in Genesis 1 through 11. So the book of Genesis is foundational to the rest of the Bible. And right in the heart of that is this key verse. And Abram believed the Lord. And it was credited to him as righteousness. That is where our salvation began. Now, our salvation is dependent upon Jesus, absolutely. But the way that we are made right with God, the way we relate to God, started right there. In fact, you may or may not realize this, and we won't get into why this is true, but it's interesting that Abraham is claimed by three major religions of the world. Christians claim him as the father of our faith. Jews claim him as the father of their faith. Muslims claim him as the father of their faith. It's kind of interesting that one man is claimed by three different religions. Why do we claim Abram or Abraham as the father of our faith? Let's look at the text real quick. Look at the uh, scripture. Uh, I want you to go to Genesis 15 so that you can write something in the column of your Bible if you do that kind of thing. We've read about God cutting a covenant. And it says at the top of my chapter in Genesis 15, God's covenant with Abram. Right there in the column, you might want to write down these two references. Romans 4. Romans 4. And then write down this cross reference. Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Galatians 3, 6 through 9. So... In Genesis 15, we see God cutting a covenant with Abram. And it says in the middle of that chapter, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now let's flip over to Romans chapter 4. We're going to have to read quickly, but I think we're going to have time to finish this. Romans chapter 4. What shall we say then that Abraham, our, what's that next word? Our what? Our forefather. Father of our faith. What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Here's what the scripture says. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Does that sound familiar? A direct quote from Genesis 15, 16. Now, verse 4, now when a man works, or Genesis 15, 6 rather, now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. If you go to work this week, at the end of the week, if you're paid weekly on Friday, they're going to give you your wages. They're going to give you your paycheck. They're going to give you what you earned. That's the argument being made in verse 4. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. 
However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith, you ought to underline or circle or highlight, his faith is credited as righteousness. Then he makes the case. David says the same thing when he speaks about the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not count against him. This is a quote from David. In this blessedness, or I'm sorry, is this blessedness only for the circumcised, that is for the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, or for Gentiles like you and I? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? In other words, did Abraham become a Jew before he put his faith in Christ? It was not after, but before. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness, that he had faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of, of all who believe. You ought to underline that. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but are also walking the footsteps of the faith that our, forf- that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham was and his offspring received the promise that he would be an heir of the world, but it was through the righteousness that comes by Faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, then faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. Watch this. This is highlighted in my Bible. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. There's that quote again. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. And then, I love this, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written, watch this, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us, who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Oh, that's beautiful. I'll close with this. Galatians, go over to the right. Galatians chapter 3. We don't have time to talk about it, but we at least have time to read it. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
There's that verse again, our key core verse. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Amen? Our key verse, core verse. Abraham believed and God credited it to him as righteousness. And look up here. God's still keeping that covenant. God is still honoring that covenant. And God will continue to honor that covenant for anyone and everyone until the Lord Jesus comes back. There will not be another covenant that supersedes this one. You know, there was a covenant uh, with, with, uh, with Adam, and then it, there was another one that was superseded with Abraham and, and so forth. But, but there's this covenant, the new covenant, in the blood of the Lord Jesus, will never be superseded, it will never be changed, but it will always be offered to those who need it most.